For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Uh, Oklahoma's senators say they will vote for President Trump's nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2016, both James Lankford and Jim Inhofe opposed voting for then-President Barack Obama's nominee seven months before an election saying the people should decide. Neva, right now we have less than six weeks until the election. Well, what we have is historical precedent clearly supports the Senate considering uh, an election year vacancy when there's unified government, meaning same party holds the White House and the Senate majority, which is what we have. So with a 53-47 majority, um, the Senate clearly is set for the drama of what's going to uh, ensue with the president making uh, uh, making the statement earlier this week that he will announce uh, his, uh, um, his selection on Saturday. And I think that uh, what we have is basically a unified Republican front in the Senate. Uh, only two uh, senators, Elisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, have said that they would wait. One of those is up for re-election in November. One is not. So uh, I, th- I think that there's. I think that there was going to be this uh, raging debate and this very, uh, very competitive uh, atmosphere out there. Regardless, uh, once we uh, had the passing of. Uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg last week. Ryan. You know, first, I want to you know, pay a little bit of a tribute to Justice Ginsburg, one of the, you know, somebody who's uh, works for the ACLU of Oklahoma and Justice Ginsburg, easily the most illustrious alumni of the American Civil Liberties Union in its entire 100 year history uh, and worked there, started the Women's Rights Project there and uh, is just a, um, a real beacon in the history of women's equality in the United States of America. And there's ties to Oklahoma there. You know, Justice Ginsburg at one point lived at Lawton. Uh, her husband was stationed at Fort Sill. And then she advised the plaintiff's attorneys on the case Craig v. Boren, a seminal case in the advancement of gender equity and inequality in the United States of America. Uh, Curtis Craig, an OSU student at, the, uh, at, the, at Oklahoma State University, challenged the state law then that said that 18-year-old women could buy alcohol, but you had to be 21 years old if you were a man. Uh, Mr. Mr. Craig went on to become an attorney himself, and, and I got to know him at a mediation conference that I went to. And what that case said, the, the Supreme Court struck down that Oklahoma law, and Justice Ginsburg, at that time an attorney, helped greatly with the, how the court considered that, that particular case. Um, and now that Justice Ginsburg is gone, I don't think that there's, and I hear a lot of calls of hypocrisy I don't think there's a lot of hypocrisy, but I also think that we could do without the torture logic of of how we're getting to this spot right now where the Senate is probably going to proceed and vote on a Trump appointee for the United States Supreme Court. It's entirely consistent. Mitch McConnell has been the architect of a decades-long strategy to capture the courts. Now he's on the the cusp of realizing the conservative fever dream of the Federalist Society of replacing Justice Ginsburg with a conservative vote. Back in 2016, they knew that they had to wait until 2017 if they were going to uh, hold on to Justice, the then late Justice Scalia's seat. Now, consistent, if they want to be able to guarantee a conservative vote, they've got to have the vote before the election and before the inauguration of a new president that could potentially be Joe Biden. And so that's that to me is consistent. It's the exercise of political power. And, and we're seeing that coincide now with with terrible chance uh, in the passing of Justice Ginsburg. 
Neva, could this impact the races for the Republican Party and, and keep keeping hold of the Senate? Well, I think I mean, I think there's the potential that it could have some impact on races across the board, Democrat and Republican. I mean, this is this is a situation where, um, by and large, Americans uh, tend to view selections to the highest court in the land as something that is uh, that does have the political dimension because it is about the conservative versus the liberal swing on the court. And that obviously brings in partisan politics uh, in terms of just the discussion uh, point. But I think when you look at the the overall, when you look at, for instance, Senator Romney, uh, who many were waiting to see what he would do in terms of moving forward with the uh, uh, Trump nomination or whether he would uh, fall in line with Murkowski and, and Collins and potentially others, he said that his decision uh, uh, regarding the Supreme Court nomination is not a result of a subjective test of fairness, uh, like uh, beauty is the eye, in the eye of the beholder. He said that it's the immutable fairness of following the law, which in this case is the Constitution and precedent. So I think uh, I, I think it will be fascinating to see what uh, what what comes forward in the next few weeks. The Oklahoma County Jail Trust comes close to removing immigrations and customs enforcement agents from the jail. The panel voted four to two in favor of not allowing ICE to be stationed at the jail. But attorneys say five votes are needed in the nine person trust to pass a measure. Ryan, what do you think of this vote? Well, let's let's just start off by reminding everyone immigration enforcement is not law enforcement and law enforcement is not immigration enforcement. There's there's really no good policy reason for having ICE officers embedded in the Oklahoma County Jail. And there's a very good policy reason for not doing that. The number of times that we have heard stories about people that haven't reported crimes that have remained in dangerous situations, maybe, maybe you know, whether that's a domestic violence situation. I even saw a story recently about a missing child uh, and, and, uh, and the, the investigation there was hindered because people were afraid to come forward and talk to law enforcement because of the current policy of commingling law enforcement with immigration enforcement. So we have entire communities, families, neighborhoods uh, that are reluctant to cooperate with law enforcement because we've seen that these ICE agents that are that are at the jail uh, have become deterrents to people being able to talk to law enforcement with any confidence or trust that they're not going to be end up in deportation proceedings, rightfully or wrongfully. Um, so that's, <clears throat> I think that we'll see this issue come back up in front of the county jail. It's an incredibly important policy matter. And regardless of how you feel about immigration policy, whether you feel like it needs to be relaxed or it needs to be uh, and even more uh, onerous than it currently is, I think that we can all agree that the public safety consequences of having ICE agents in that county jail uh, warrant a discussion and I, th- I think warrant their removal. Neva. Well, I think I mean when you look at when you, when you look at this whole situation, we have uh, the jail trust taking over uh, July one, and and there has been a push to have this conversation about ICE procedures almost from the get go. And and you're right, Ryan. When when we talk about the trust, I mean they were told that state law requires facilities to make a reasonable effort to identify citizenship uh, status. 
uh, with people with certain criminal charges like DUIs or whatever. But reasonable is the big question. What what does that constitute? And more importantly, they are not required. It is not required for ICE officers to actually have uh, desk space inside of the facility. And I think, you know, what we've seen is this uh, this growing question uh, and concern uh, by many nationwide. I mean, this is not just something that the Oklahoma County Jail Trust is, is looking at. This has been, as we look at a lot of uh, studies and things that have been going on for the past 30 years, we've seen a six-fold increase in ICE uh, uh, detaining and, and using the county jails across the country. And with that come a lot of questions, uh, including the fact that uh, uh, apparently there is a great, uh, uh, there's been a great deal of looking into the fact that that the public bidding process has in many instances been avoided by ICE, uh, which, you know, begs the question, is that in the best interest, not only of the federal government, but taxpayers and the detainees? So uh, it's a complicated, it's a complicated picture. And very definitely jail trust needs to uh, wrap their arms around it and figure out uh, how they're going to move forward. Ryan, I have a question about the vote. Uh, They needed five votes. They needed a majority of those who should be on the trust. Is that common for, uh, usually it's just how majority of people present? Yeah, normally it's a majority of those present. If you've got, you know, normal rules, kind of the default uh, is if you've got quorum, meaning that you've got enough people there that you can do business, you can legally do business, which they had, they had quorum. Normally it's a majority of those present. Um, And so a requirement that you have to have a majority of of everyone that is uh, currently on that trust uh, to be able to move forward with an affirmative action uh, yeah, that's, that's a change uh, or it's not necessarily a change, but it's, but it's a regular, it's, Mm -hmm. it's different than what normal proceedings uh, in a public body would be. And it was interesting at that meeting. I mean, you had four that voted uh, to remove the officers. You had two that voted not to, you had one that abstained. That was the uh, representative from the uh, sheriff's office. I believe Mm -hmm. you had one that wasn't present, but then you also had the, the, uh, jail trust chair who had been at the meeting, but then left before the vote took place. So it was kind of mumbly pegs in terms of if you'd had all of the, if you've had all the folks at the, uh, at the table and making the vote, uh, at that point in time, uh, much of this might have been resolved uh, at their meeting on Monday. Well, and they've got four votes in favor of removing. It, it's hard to imagine that uh, either the absent vote, the abstention vote, uh, you know, that they change that dynamic very much. I think that once they get to their, their required number of members present and voting for their bylaws under the trust, my, my sense is that we'll see those ICE officers uh, removed by a vote of the jail trust. The state plans to now test prison employees for COVID-19. The decision comes after a spike in deaths at facilities across the state, including nearly 10 deaths from people after testing positive for the disease. Neva, this has been a point of conflict between the Department of Corrections and prisoner advocates. Well, but this is something, again, I mean, we need to step back and look at this, not only uh, from the uh, from the context of Oklahoma Department of Corrections, but also nationally, as we've seen more movement, as we've seen cases spike, I mean, much of this has occurred uh, in the last uh, uh, 30 to 45 days. And much of that has been with the change in just movement uh, in uh, folks coming back into these facilities. In many instances, including uh, in Oklahoma, we had 
we had a, a uh, basically a slowdown of moving new prisoners into these facilities. But now, as we have seen, as we have seen uh, uh, across the board, we're seeing more movement, and that has increased the hotspots. I mean, we had Lexington, uh, Benita, Alva, Sarah. Enid, McAllister, Fort Supply, all across the state uh, is where we is where we saw these um, um, where we saw these upticks, and yet the hard hit Eddie Warrior Correctional Center that we talked about last week, the women's facility in Taft, they actually have been removed as a hotspot because they were able to get in there and uh, do what they needed to do to bring uh, to bring the uh, uh, the occurrences under control. Ryan, yeah, I think that. It also highlights the number of folks that are in prisons that I think most Oklahomans would be surprised that they're in prison to begin with. Uh, COVID-19 has put a lot of, uh, of our public policy uh, in, in, in focus for us, you know, whether that's healthcare, uh, whether that's um, you know, government oversight, but I think in particular, the criminal justice system has really been put in, the, in, in focus uh, in detail over you know why why do we have this situation right now? There's a there's a very important article on the frontier written by Brianna Bailey. I encourage everybody to go in there and read that because you know she talks about the case of uh, a gentleman named Antonio Lucio, and this guy is sitting in prison right now, one of these hotspot prisons, on a seven year sentence for possession with intent to distribute. And he had when he was arrested, he had 1.3 ounces of marijuana on him. You know, think about that for a moment. 1.3 ounces of marijuana. As a medical marijuana patient myself, I can possess exponentially more marijuana on me and my household uh, than 1.3 ounces. He's there on a seven-year sentence, and he's there because he had priors, uh, nonviolent priors, that the DA there was able to stack against him. And so if he didn't take a plea deal back in January, he would have faced a much longer prison sentence if he'd gone to trial. And so he took a plea deal, seven years, for 1.3 ounces of marijuana. Now, Antonio is there and his, his wife is, is very concerned about him because he has high blood pressure and, and other, other factors that make him a higher risk for mortality with COVID-19 and complications with COVID-19. And she's right to be worried because he's trapped there now in prison for 1.3 ounces of marijuana. That's kind of insane. And I think that, you know, state question 805, if state question 805 passes and it had been the law whenever Mr. Lucio was, uh, was arrested, the DA wouldn't have been able to threaten him with a much longer prison sentence. He maybe wouldn't have taken that seven year plea deal. Maybe he would have gone to trial. Um, and so that, I mean, it gives us this opportunity to look at not only these, these hotspots, but when we think about the people that are caught up in those hotspots, you know, whether that's correctional officers, but the inmates that are there, you know, should they really be there? Uh, and I think the answer for most of them is no. And the legislature and the people of Oklahoma have an opportunity both at the ballot box with State Question 805 and this upcoming legislative session to continue to think about who should be in prison and who shouldn't. And I hope next week we'll, well be able to talk about State Question 805. Yeah, but yeah. the criminal justice reform uh, side of it, that's one thats one part of the discussion uh, to be had. But what we're talking about in, in specific here is the move, the mandatory uh, testing of all 3,300 employees, uh, the increased testing of the vulnerable inmate population. I mean, it is about dealing with uh, 
dealing with what what is at hand. And also, uh, it, I think it is important to mention that part of this conversation is that uh, uh, the folks working, um, our public employees working in the in the prison system, uh, uh, were given a two dollar hazardous duty pay mm-hmm. increase that begins immediately. Certainly warranted. Certainly needed. Um, and I think we have to take into account that. Uh, uh, that this is a conversation that will be ongoing. I mean, uh, the the uh, spike that uh, that we have already seen in early August, uh, after a slowdown in in June, March, April, May, and into June nationally, we're seeing the same we're seeing the same numbers, and we're seeing this spike now in in the uh, facilities across the state. And it has to be it has to be brought under control. And I think the measures that are being put into place hopefully will. Uh, uh, we'll see some demonstrated evidence that uh, the numbers will go down in the very near future. Right. And again, I hope next week we'll be able to talk more about state question 805. A petition to take the redistricting process out of the hands of politicians and move it to an independent count committee gets withdrawn by supporters. The decision came earlier this week from the group People Not Politicians. Ryan, why did organizers remove it from consideration? I think that when you look at the the context of you know continued legal fights, which they have almost won across the board, uh, the expense of that, uh, when you look at the ability to go out and collect signatures uh, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you know they they face some some difficult struggles from a campaign. I think that they you know may have been able to overcome those, but when you put that in the context of gestures of goodwill uh, and transparency. Uh, and openness from legislative leaders in the redistricting process, I think that there's some hope that they will be able to take the political movement, Andy Moore, who's, who's done a remarkable job at, at people, not politicians. I think that there's hope that they're going to be able to move that political movement to focus on holding lawmakers to their word. You know, lawmakers right now, you know, Speaker McCall and Senator Treat, leaders in the Senate and the House, respectively, they have Demonst- they have they have said you know we're going to have a very open process we're going to uh, invite citizen input and I think now people not politicians uh, is going to be the chief organization that's out there holding them to that word and then if they don't uh, Andy Moore the the director of people not politicians has said that they've got they and I I was there at the press conference they've got the the petition in a stamped envelope it's ready to be uh, dropped off and delivered to the secretary of state's office and say all right well We'll go back to the people with this if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. I think it. Uh, I think it d- does bear uh, consideration of future reforms beyond this redistricting process that we're looking at right now, but also political reforms that I think would increase representation across Oklahoma. And again, that includes things like ranked choice voting and and instant runoffs and uh, a pro- possible pro- uh, proportional representation, ending the single member majority district. Those are things that I think that people, not politicians, may be looking at uh, moving forward. But right now, they're going to hold these politicians' feet to the fire. Aniva, it sounds like the Republicans in the House and Senate have done what they can to ease concerns from this group. I, I think that's true. And as we've talked about many times uh, through the years, uh, the Oklahoma legislature has an excellent record at going through this process of redistricting every 10 years. I mean, there has never been a court challenge sustained against uh, the lines that they've drawn, both the, the legislative boundaries, congressional boundaries. And I think, you know, I think all of this uh, conversation uh, that that uh, that we see in this instance from this particular group, people, not politicians. I mean, they've been a driving force in other states without question. And places, uh, the eight states that have these types of commissions, they've been able to 
sell this idea that uh, that this uh, quote independent uh, group uh, is somehow a better um, a better commission and process to have in place to 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 move through redistricting and 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 other questions but there's just no appetite for it here in Oklahoma I mean what I think what we see is the folks recognize they have the opportunity to have input not only public meetings not only the opportunity to draw their own maps, uh, not the the opportunity to have uh, a say with their own uh, legislators. I mean, there is enormous input uh, at every level. We'll see it again starting uh, uh, early next year as they begin to uh, move through this process. So the idea that 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 there that the these commissions need to be in place that somehow this is going to make it better in the state. Really, all all you really see in the states where this has occurred is that you have seen. Seeing groups like uh, people, not politicians, claim victory for changing uh, congressional seats uh, into uh, the other party's hands, which makes it just, again, the, the clash of who has majority control. But with the majority making decisions, you still have to have a fair process, an independent and open process. And I think we see that that's in place in Oklahoma without question. Oklahoma's unemployment rate currently ranks at 10th lowest in the U.S. After peaking at more than 12 percent for unemployment in May during the height of the pandemic, the state's jobless rate now stands at 5.7 percent. Neva, this was welcome news from Governor Stitt. Good news. And I think the question is, I mean, as as we uh, looked at the um, information that was put out this week, 51,000 plus jobs uh, uh, in August, uh, that the unemployment uh, decreased by more than 23,000. Yes, those are great numbers. Uh, regaining 45% of the lost jobs that we've had during the pandemic. The question is, I mean, it, it, and I think it does beg the question, are Oklahomans just returning to work? I mean, in many instances, we've had closed businesses. Uh, we've had major sectors of the economy, food industry and other places where they have been slow to reopen and, and uh, uh, kind of regain their uh, uh, re- regain their business climate the way they would like to see it. And many of those businesses down substantially over uh, years uh, over the previous year. So that's the question. That's the question is, uh, will we be able to see these numbers maintain themselves? Will they move through not only the third quarter that w- that's ending, but into the fourth quarter? Uh, obviously, uh, to be 10th lowest ranked in the, in the country now for unemployment is a good sign. And we hope that that's just a sign of things to come. Ryan. You know, I think that the unemployment numbers do tell a a hopeful story, but I think that we have to recognize that a lot of the the gains that we've seen in the uh, the economy in Oklahoma have really been a result of investment from the Federal CARES Act and and other efforts to help shore up businesses in the state of Oklahoma to get them in a position where they could keep people on their payroll, rehire people that were initially laid off at the outset of the pandemic. Now that we're seeing spikes in the pandemic again, I think we have a lot of employers and and I think, you know, more importantly, a lot of employees that are out there having to choose between their health uh, and the health of their customers and the health of the the services that they're providing and and a paycheck. And, you know, no one should really be in that situation. It underscores the the urgency that Congress needs to uh, to act with whenever it comes to a new round of stimulus spending that goes directly into states and provides critically needed support for a lot of businesses. Uh, you know, this is good news. I don't want to. I don't want to say that 
that this isn't good news, but we shouldn't look at this and say that, that everything is, is back to normal because it's certainly not. And with a spike in COVID this fall, I think that we could see a new downturn in the economy again. And especially whenever we've seen the new opening up, a lot of this new opening up has relied on outdoor spaces that, you know, weather like the, the weather we're experiencing right now allows for. But whenever it starts to get cold and, and nasty and folks are moved back indoors, what does that look like? Uh, you know, whether you're a bar or a restaurant or, uh, you know, if you're if you're a service provider out there. So we, we Congress really needs to act with some urgency here, because what we're seeing right now, I don't think is sustainable without additional investments. And further good news, the unemployed are actually getting three hundred dollars more in their check. So at least that's something also for the people who are still looking for jobs. Well, but all of those things are expiring. I mean, right. you know, without without congressional action, you know, a lot a lot of folks have seen their their stimulus funding and their additional unemployment funding. That's that's gone for a lot of Oklahomans out there, and so they are returning back to the workforce. Um, and you know, that's for some employees uh, that you know that uh, we've we've got to the point where whether it's personal protection, uh, personal protective equipment, or um, you know, social distancing and new norms. Uh, you know, those workplaces are safer than they would have been, say, in June. But that's just not the case for a lot of people, especially people in the service sector uh, that that are having to contend with a lack of a statewide mask mandate. The, the White House, re, the White House report on on coronavirus in Oklahoma isn't a pretty picture, and I think it's there's some disconnect between what we're seeing from federal officials and the actions that we're seeing here on the ground in the state. And so there there has to be there has to be some action here, or we're not going to be able to uh, to sustain. Uh, this little you know, piece of good news that we're seeing in unemployment. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.